0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier Institute premier public policy podcast. My name is Dr. Sean Watley. I'm a Monk Senior Fellow here at MLI. I'm also a clinician. I have a small rural family practice. I've done emergency medicine for years and years. I'm an author and try to do a bunch of other things that get me into trouble. But the important thing today is we have a fantastic guest. It's Dr. Martha Fulford. Perhaps you've read her articles in some of the major newspapers in the country and heard her on TV. She's an associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at McMaster University and we're thrilled to have her with us. Uh, Welcome Dr. Fulford. Thank you for asking me. So we're going to be talking about COVID and the pandemic. I hope you're not sick of talking about it and this has certainly been top of mind for the last year and a half. You've actually lived and worked through other pandemics and so how has COVID-19 been different from your experience dealing with other infectious diseases, particularly other pandemics?
1: We've always had very detailed pandemic management plans. The most recent one for Canada was from 2018. The thought, of course, was that the next big pandemic would be influenza. As it turned out, it was COVID, but it's a very, in a lot of ways, similar respiratory virus. And our plans... That we had for influenza, if we had just crossed out the word influenza and added in the word COVID or replaced it with COVID, they they would have been excellent pandemic management plans. But I think there was a lot of, obviously, uncertainty when this started, people weren't quite sure what was going to happen. And somehow, with COVID, we've tossed out what would be a normal pandemic management plan with the local, provincial and federal emergency response teams It's become a much more top-down control than I've ever seen with not as much input as I'm used to in terms of protecting infrastructure, protecting the economy. There are a lot of things that you would normally do with a pandemic. So clearly, when infectious diseases hit a population, one of the most important things is protect those who are most vulnerable from being affected from it. So protecting people who might become severely ill and who might die. We need to figure out where it's being transmitted and focus our attention on the areas of transmission. We then need to build surge capacity because with any pandemic, it's usually recognized that there will be a surge in patients. Unfortunately, this is what happens with pandemics, and we get ready to deal with this. So we build surge capacity. And finally, and for me, very, very important, is while doing our best to protect the health and well-being of, of those who are vulnerable to the infection, we don't actually destroy the fabric of our society. So. A short lockdown, for example, at the beginning of a pandemic, is meant to buy time to get ready. It's not normally the go-to mechanism for ongoing control the lockdown never makes the virus go away. The lockdown buys you time. During that time, you get ready with your surge capacity and targeted approaches. And that's what we haven't really seen with COVID, with a very few exceptions.
0: Well, that's a a brilliant introduction. And actually, you've made so many great comments that I want to pick up on. You mentioned uncertainty, tossed out the plans, top down, no input, infrastructure. wondering if we can start with that word you used about uncertainty at the start. And it seems to me that people have not only said we were sort of mired in uncertainty when we awoke to the threat, let's say around end of February, March. What about this line where people say, this is completely different. We've never seen anything like this before. It doesn't matter how much you study this. We have to do whatever we think is reasonable because the threat is so huge, sort of worst case scenario approaches. Can you comment on that? You use the word uncertainty and then this general fear.
1: In March of 2020, We had some fairly horrifying images coming out of China with them building mass field hospitals. There was a pretty devastating impact in northern Italy and then in New York. And at this point, it's not 100% clear exactly what the impact of this virus would be, how many people would actually die of it. And this was the initial lockdown. It very rapidly became apparent, and certainly by May of 2020, it was eminently clear that this was a virus that predominantly targeted for seniors. And there's no question that for anybody in long-term care, an older member of our society with comorbidities, getting COVID could be quite devastating. But it was equally evident that young people were not, in fact, particularly affected by COVID or dying of it. And so what we call infection fatality rates, the number of people who, who get the infection who actually die, was dramatically lower than what we initially thought.
0: When did we find that out?
1: It was pretty clear by the end of the first wave, actually. I mean, we had data from around the world, children were not dying. This was clear in New York, it was clear in China, it was clear in Italy, it was clear anywhere that COVID was happening, was that there are always gonna be some exceptions that a younger adult uh, might succumb. But if you looked at the numbers, this was unquestionably a virus That was very devastating to frail elderly in congregate care settings. And while younger people could certainly get COVID, in younger people, it's essentially an upper respiratory tract infection.
0: So we knew point one, you listed your four-point plan of protecting the vulnerable, or at least identifying the vulnerable. Would you say that we knew who the vulnerable were within a few months or weeks?
1: Well, certainly within a few months. I think if you look at the mortality in Canada and in a great many countries. It was the 80-plus and 70-plus age group. We have at least weekly updates from Public Health Agencies of Canada, and you can certainly look at the Canadian data and see that for people who died of COVID, it is the vast majority in the 80-plus group and then the 70-plus group. Again, not to minimize that there are some younger people But if you just took those numbers, then the threat and the danger is not that different than the threat of a lot of things that we would normally deal with. So in other words, the perception of the risk that we had in March seems to have never altered. There are still some people who seem to feel that this is a deadly virus for anybody who might get it with really no sense of perspective or comparison. So nobody is comparing it to other infectious diseases, to cancer to heart disease, to car accidents. And again, not to minimize any individual person. There are people who are dying, but there's no sense of perspective. And certainly by the summer, there were enough people saying, we should have a targeted approach. We know that it's our seniors and frail members of our society who are at risk. For me, I would have thought we could start to talk about a targeted approach. We didn't do a very good job.
0: Were we on the right track?
1: It's an interesting question because there was a lot, I think, that we could have done, for example, in our long-term care facilities. And it really, even though we recognized them after the first wave, because it was pretty devastating, make no mistake, when it went through a long-term care facility, we didn't do very much really to change the conditions. There was a lot of investment probably could have been done. And to be fair, a lot of us have known about problems in long-term care for a very, very long time. They've just dramatically come to light with COVID. So it's not that they're new have we done a huge investment in fixing these underlying structural staffing infrastructure problems? I haven't seen a lot of that in Ontario, no.
0: So there's infrastructure, but then there's also our response. Do you think we could have done more in our response? And maybe what would that have been? Should we have been doing daily testing for people who work in long-term care? What are your thoughts on that?
1: One of the issues is, If you look at where the transmission was consistently happening and where we would have our hotspots, it pretty much has always started in individuals that we refer to as our essential workers. These are people who have to work. So, I mean, you can lock down or have stay-at-home orders as much as you want. That's for the people who have the luxury of being able to stay at home. I, for example, live in a nice house. I have a backyard. It's not that difficult for me to have to work from home if, if that's what I was required to do. But I, of course, can go on my computer. I can order a box delivered to me. I can have everything sent to my home. But somebody has to pack that box. Somebody has to deliver it. Somebody has to pack grocery store shelves. And when we get back to long-term care, the people who provide care in the long-term care settings, a lot of them are very tenuous in terms of job security. They're part-time. They're working at multiple sites. They have no security in terms of benefits or sick pay. They were, of course, in very close contact and also using public transport office. So these are people who are working in very close contact with frail population. And by close contact, they're feeding them, they're helping them with their toileting, they're helping them with their bathing and going to multiple sites. And often women, but not exclusively women, with no security and no job benefits, a person like that can't suddenly be off work for 14 days because the choice is going to be quietly keep working or have no money, no income and no food for his or her children for two weeks. And we didn't really fix that. We could have done things like massively trained up a cadre of personal support workers. The training could have been provided for free. We eventually did do that, but quite late in the game.
0: Is that where transmission was happening, do you think, with the essential workers or with people who had to go to work but yet still had close contact with the frail elderly? Just before we leave the long-term care bit, and your four points, you said who's vulnerable and then where is transmission happening? Do you have a sense then of where transmission was happening?
1: Well, wave one was a little bit different because we weren't sure, but certainly with wave two and very definitely with, with the third wave, it's very clear it's the hotspots. These are the areas where essential workers are, are living and working from. And this is very clear, even for our third wave, if you look at where it started, it was in the Toronto, Brampton Peel areas, those neighbourhoods, which were still in lockdown, quite frankly, when our third wave started. Because people working in those settings, they still had to go to work, they still had to provide these essential services. It would not be hard to find a lot of physicians and a lot of people advocating for things like paid leave Isolation facilities. You need to go to those workplaces because that's where the transmission is happening. Targeting vaccination once the vaccines were available to those neighborhoods right away because that's where we were getting a lot of the uh, the hot spots. And if you can vaccinate the group that's highest at risk and those around them, you have almost like a ring around that to try to slow down and transmission.
0: And do these ideas do they fit with the plans that were in place? pre-COVID, which you're very familiar with, and I think you've even helped draft some of these pandemic planning response plans. So the ideas that you're raising now, would they have flowed naturally from those pandemic plans that we already had?
1: Yeah, this isn't anything particularly original or unique
0: that I'm saying. Right. And so have we done it?
1: Maybe in the last third wave we're starting. (laughs) I think it's pretty clear we didn't do a lot to build surge capacity, You know, in Hamilton, where I work, we're getting one of the mobile health facilities that are being put up. It'll sort of be up and running by the beginning of June. And perhaps in hindsight, that's the kind of thing we should have been planning for last summer. And again, if you look at the history of pandemics, personally, I'm not sure that COVID is that different than a bad influenza pandemic in terms of the pattern we should go through a population. I mean, I appreciate it's a different virus, but if you look even back to 1918-19, at the spanish influenza you'll see it had three curves there's a lot of history of medicine that one can go back and look at and learn how these things tend to go through a population so i don't think it should have been a surprise that we had a second wave or even a third wave much of after our first lockdown again hindsight being perfect but in hindsight that really should have been when we should have been doubling down to build surge capacity and sure we could cope i mean you know as well as i do that our hospitals are essentially at overcapacity every single winter with a standard respiratory virus season. And and so us being overcapacity and having gridlock and having overflowing intensive care units is nothing new. But unfortunately, when you've got hospitals that are always at 100% capacity or overcapacity, you have zero ability to deal with an influx of patients in the event of something like a pandemic, obviously.
0: Let's stick a pin in the capacity in our hospital, because I want to circle back to that and get your frontline experience on what you've seen. But you mentioned something about historically, and I've seen a few pictures floating around about notices about lockdowns and quarantine, I believe it was with the 1919 influenza pandemic. Can you comment on that? So I bristle at lockdowns, but maybe we've always had lockdowns and we're just out of practice.
1: If you go back, it's almost like repetition of history with the 1918-19 pandemic. For example, you can see curves showing where different communities put in these so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions early or late. And this was, of course, to try to do what we were doing last year, which is flatten the curve. And the idea of flattening a curve is to slow down the rate at which a virus goes through your community. As I was saying earlier, lockdowns will make a virus go away. It slows it down. But lockdowns in and of themselves, it's the idea is to try to sort of minimize you know, person-to-person contact where it might be transmitted. So as a short-term initial intervention, I didn't question it last March. I, I was not uncomfortable with where what we knew was saying, OK, we need to stop and see what's going on. But once we had a better sense, that's where I sort of feel that maybe we didn't evolve, shall we say, in terms of some of our responses. But yes, you're right. There were lockdowns in 1918-19. And if you go back, people also got fed up with them pretty quickly and definitely see history repeating itself.
0: And were there multiple lockdowns, serial lockdowns every few weeks or months?
1: One of the differences, I think, then is it tend to be much more local. So it would be a city that did it or a community there wasn't the same degree of the entire country or society. And this is probably a reflection of the difference in communications that are going on right now and our ability to do mass intervention. There's actually a very, very good book if of anybody's of interested called The Great Influenza by a Barry. But it was a lot more of a local or municipal level and much less trying to get an entire state or province to do it. And I suspect that's slower communication, nowhere near the same degree of mass transit. And so there was probably a little bit more opportunity for individual responses at different community levels.
0: I'd like to circle back to something you said earlier about how decisions are being made and how it feels top-down, plans were tossed out, very little input from the front lines. You are an expert, an associate professor, and for listeners who don't realize, an associate professor is like one step below full professor, and almost nobody gets there anymore these days. You're an uber-expert in infectious diseases, and yet, even myself, I feel like we're being told what to do and what to think by a small group of people, really, really, really smart people. But how does someone like yourself, who is on the cutting edge of this, and you've raised questions, you've asked publicly, how do you stick handle through all that? And how do you feel as an expert? Is this a good way to handle an emerging, evolving viral pandemic?
1: Whenever we are confronted with something new like COVID, there's clearly going to be a very, very fast learning curve. And clearly there was going to be and continues to be an awful lot that we don't know So one of the single most important things in a situation like this would be, in fact, to be extremely open-minded about information coming in, to ensure that we look at all different viewpoints, that we actually ask probing questions, because it's new. There are a lot of unknowns. We're doing a lot of things that are very different to our society. And for some people, we're doing some incredibly destructive things. So in order for us to ensure that this is the right thing, there should be constant questioning and debate and discussion and even i would have thought trials even at the community level what interventions work best what can we do to ensure that we minimize the impact of covid while maximizing all the rest of the really important public health issues that we need to look after and so for me health is defined as a state of physical social mental well-being it's not just the absence of disease Public health for me couldn't just be COVID, It's a very important public health issue, but in dealing with it, as we learned information, I think it would have been important to be open-minded, to ask questions, to be critical, to look at what other jurisdictions are doing. So I live in Ontario, what has British Columbia done that's different? How come it's worked there? And can we learn from them? Can we learn from European colleagues? Sweden is a much vilified country because they never had any of these were really hard lockdowns. I mean, they certainly had public health interventions, but they didn't have the same degree of harsh lockdown. It's a much vilified country because of this in many ways. But instead of just saying that they're terrible and everybody's dying, maybe we could have asked questions. Is there something that Sweden is doing that we can learn from? I don't know that we were very open-minded in looking at other jurisdictions. We we're very quick to condemn any plan or any way of trying to deal with this that was different than what we were doing.
0: Can I be a bit of the devil's advocate? I agree with you 100%. And I think you have to have the most strange ideas and most absurd questions out there so that they can be addressed. And if they're strange and wrong, then you can show them to be wrong really quickly. So that sounds Stuart Mill, as we all know. But you mentioned Sweden and being much vilified, and there have been physicians with voices outside of the consensus, shall we say, the mainstream consensus that have been vilified as well. Let's say we have some physicians who are really insistent on saying things that perhaps even make you cringe and me cringe and say, OK, whoa, well, they're not even talking about the basics of science anymore. They're talking about some other interesting things. Do you have thoughts on that? Because I know the Regulatory College in Ontario came out and said, hey, doctor. You better be careful. You're not supposed to say anything against anything that public health says. You must not be anti vaccine, anti lockdown, anti mask, anti anything. And that to me felt a little heavy handed. But I wonder what your thoughts are on there. If everyone thought the way you did, and hopefully the way I did do, then we could have a rational discussion. But are there some docs who maybe go too far? What are your thoughts on that?
1: It's a very interesting question. When is something truly True misinformation? When is it that we just don't know? And when is it that there are more than one correct answer? Because there's not always only one way to accomplish something. This is not unique to medicine. There are many situations where there are various paths one could take, and they're all okay. I would be uncomfortable, but there's some stuff that's just not right dunking people in a lake and saying it's going to cure COVID is clearly incorrect. There's some really far out there things. I'm an infectious disease physician, I'm extremely pro-vaccine. I think it's reasonable to ask questions, but you know, our vaccines are certainly not connecting you to 5G system and they're not somehow connecting you to Bill Cates because it's like some strategy to control people. It is not altering our DNA. You know, there's stuff that I agree, this is incorrect information and we've got Facts we can show this is just not true.
0: You offer better information.
1: And you can respond with better information. But there's a huge area, which I think I would describe as a gray zone. So there could be people who are very against non-selective lockdown. And that means the mass shutting down of everything. These are people who are saying, no, I don't agree with this. I actually believe in COVID. It's very real. I absolutely believe we should have targeted restrictions, but I think those restrictions should be focused in on where we know the transmission is happening. So to the best of our ability, we're controlling COVID, but simultaneously with controlling COVID, we are ensuring that to the best of our ability, we're maximizing the public health, all the other important health parameters of our population. A person, for example, could be anti-harsh lockdown, but absolutely pro-restriction, pro-vaccine, pro-masking in the right circumstances. So there are lots of in-between things. And this polarization of viewpoints where only one perspective is correct and everybody else is wrong, or saying, for example, if a person is anti-lockdown, and I'm going to be careful with that word, I don't think there are very many physicians who think nothing should be done. I think all of us agree that COVID is a medical emergency that requires targeted interventions. That doesn't mean that this group of people are extreme, right-wing, whatever. And so it's this polarization that's problematic. And with polarization, you end up with these situations where we're not even allowed to say, can we talk about it? Can we debate? Can we look at what's worked? A year ago, for example, we did not know as much about transmission. Today, we know that the risk of outdoor transmission is essentially non-existent. So we could actually not just not allow people, we should be actively encouraging people to go outdoors. It gets them out of their house. It gets people active because we know that physical activity and being fit, one of the risk factors for severe COVID, the two risk factors, obesity and lack of physical activity, actually are risk factors for severe disease and the poor outcome. And also when you encourage people to go outside, they're not inside, which is where transmission occurs. The other thing that we've learned, for example, is that it's simply not really transmitted on a surfaces. All this business of wiping down everything is really completely unnecessary. Uh, no virus jumps from a surface into your nose. You just have to wash your hands if you've touched something dirty. There are things that we know now that we could be applying. And this isn't because what happened March of last year was wrong. It's because we have now learned a lot about this virus. And so our response should be evolving as our knowledge evolves.
0: I have to pick up again on something, Dr. Fulford, you said that you are extremely pro-vaccine. So does that mean that you are unquestioningly pro any kind of vaccine that comes out for any disease, doesn't matter where it comes from, how fast it was, like
1: No, I believe vaccines are very effective. I think they've been one of the miracles of modern medicine. But I also think that when we apply a vaccine, there should be thought process to how effective is it? Who needs it? One population, we need it for another. An extreme example would be maybe the Ebola vaccine. We're certainly not going to do mass vaccination of Ebola because it's not necessary. That would be targeted to an area where we've got transmission and that's where you do the ring vaccination to try to protect everybody in an area to stop transmission. There are other vaccines, for example, shingles or one of the pneumonia vaccines that we recommend for certain age groups because we know that, say, 50 plus or 65 plus are much higher risk for these diseases. And so we recommend the vaccine at that age.
0: No, You mentioned something in a private conversation. I won't say exactly what you said, but you told me about some of the people you've seen who've come to harm from other vaccine-preventable diseases. Do you feel comfortable mentioning that? That Over your career, you gave a number.
1: I mentioned I mostly work with children. I work at at a pediatric hospital. I mean, I I see any age group with an infection, but the majority of my inpatient work, my hospital-based work is with children. I think every single year of my working life, I have been involved with the care of a child who has died of a vaccine-preventable disease.
0: Wow. So every single year?
1: Whip and cough, we certainly see meningitis. We see bad pneumonias.
0: And this is because people are refusing the vaccine or the vaccine didn't work in those individuals or they just didn't get around to getting it. Why aren't they getting it?
1: In children, it's usually because they haven't been vaccinated. And in babies, for example, with whooping cough it's more likely because their siblings or the family aren't vaccinated because they're still too young to be vaccinated.
0: What do you say to folks right now who are feeling a bit hesitant about the vaccines? I see two groups of people. One is the elderly who I'm just begging them to get their vaccination, but they say, oh, I want this particular brand or that particular brand. And then there's the very, very young people, under 18 or under 12 years old. Can you help us unpack those two groups, the different types of vaccines and then the very young people?
1: So we have two types of vaccines that are currently, they're all still actually under what we call EUA, emergency use approval. Though I would imagine Pfizer will have full approval somewhere at some point over the summer. Pfizer and Moderna are what we call messenger RNA or mRNA vaccines. And then we have AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, which are adenovirus vector vaccines. If you had asked me a year ago if we would have vaccines this quickly, I did not think we would. I would have been very wrong in my predictions. I I thought it would take at least three or four years. The vaccines have been astonishing in terms of the speed with which we've got them. All of them have been remarkable essentially close to 100% at preventing severe disease, hospitalization, and death. So then the question is, who needs that? And this is why the vaccine rollout started by age groups, because the people who are getting severe disease or hospitalized or dying, the vast majority are our seniors. And so if what we want to do, and I think it is, is minimize severe disease and death, you vaccinate the group who are at risk of that. Again, anybody can look up at the numbers. So I'm not talking about who might get COVID, because for vast majority of people, COVID is either no symptoms or extremely mild symptoms, in which case it's really not that important anymore because they're okay. They're never gonna need to see a doctor, they're never gonna be in a hospital, it'll just be another respiratory tract infection and they'll get better. But the people who do end up unhelpful, that's what we're trying to prevent. The whole lockdown, the whole flatten the curve, even now in Ontario, well, actually in many provinces, the idea is we don't want our hospitals and our intensive care units overwhelmed. So if we have vaccinated probably the 50 plus age group, we will have accomplished that goal of not having an overwhelmed hospital system. And I'm not worried that the vaccine is dangerous to anybody. So I just want to put this in context. But the need at that point is really, it becomes a little bit more of a a conversation about risks and benefits to an individual, a person who maybe has poorly controlled diabetes, who's obese, who maybe has hypertension, who's an essential worker, who's at very high risk of being exposed to COVID because of of his or her work. That person is at higher risk of getting COVID. and, And if that person gets COVID at higher risk of having severe disease, might want to get vaccinated. Another person who is 30 and completely healthy and at very low risk and at very low risk of becoming exposed at any point because they're able to work from home or work mostly outdoors. Again, I have no concerns that the person gets vaccinated, but the impact on the healthcare system is very different. And in terms of young people, Children and youth are not who are being admitted to our hospitals, and this is not actually part of the problem. And we know from other countries who are ahead of some vaccination, like, for example, Israel, United Kingdom, the United States, that just by vaccinating adults, there is extremely good control over community transmission, where well, you can see, you know, probably the United States, where we get most of our news, how rapidly they're opening up.
0: Don't these kids make us all sick?
1: I'm going to go off topic here, and then I'll come back to children. Nobody should be blamed for getting a respiratory tract infection. One thing that's also happened in COVID, which I find really unfortunate, is this naming and shaming and blaming and and penalizing of people for getting a virus. We have never done this before. You would never blame somebody who inadvertently got influenza. We don't blame somebody who gets pneumonia or gets meningitis.
0: Dr. Fulford, what if they traveled when they're not supposed to be? Shouldn't we blame them and shame them on TV?
1: No, I actually am dead against naming, shaming, and blaming. I think this is criminalizing an infectious disease is actually quite shocking to me. We've done it in the past with things like HIV, and it doesn't work. It just drives it underground. We should be using harm reduction, risk mitigation. We should be helping people out. But what we don't do is make them feel guilty. It is not the youth driving this. Young people are allowed to be young people. And if we, again, look at where transmission was happening, it was almost exclusively In terms of the big numbers in congregate care settings, in our big workplaces where our essential workers were. If you look at our schools, this was not where we had high numbers. And this is true in Ontario, and it's true in British Columbia, it's true around the world because we have study after study after study that have shown that COVID is less likely to be transmitted by children than it is by adults. It's not to say children never will. But again, I personally am not in favor of penalizing children because there's a pandemic going on. It is not the fault of our children and our youth. And our children and our youth deserve to have
0: normal lives. I agree with you entirely. I just need to cross you on the point a bit more because people press me on this point. They say, yeah, but Sean, all these sick kids, the sick kids always make grandpa and grandma sick. Come on, Sean, it's common sense. So Dr. Fulford, these sick kids, if we open schools, they're all going to have runny noses and they're going to infect the teachers and the teachers are going to infect grandma who lives in the granny suite.
1: But why isn't grandma vaccinated? That will have protected her. And the teachers are saying for teachers or even for healthcare workers, I don't want to pick on teachers, but a young, otherwise healthy teacher might get COVID is not going to have a severe disease, but any adult can get vaccinated. And again, a teacher who may be in an environment where he or she is at high risk of being exposed is somebody who should, in fact, be vaccinated, again, in contrast to maybe the person who is Predominantly working from home and unlike to be vaccinated. So again, I have no concerns with the vaccine rollout as it was by age group. In fact, I've often, when I'm not working at the hospital, I've been working at the vaccine clinics in the city because I think the faster we vaccinate, the better off we are. But neither am I going to think that I need to coerce or force or shame somebody. I would like to hope that if somebody is hesitant, that we can have a conversation, we can discuss that individual person's concerns, the risks, the benefits, the timing. There are a lot of things we can do. And for children, I'm surprised that we're as gung-ho to vaccinate teenagers in Canada. Again, only because it's still emergency use approval. We don't have a problem with kids filling in our hospitals. But my main reason for saying this is that if we really want to control COVID, this is a global problem. It's in every country in the world. And donating vaccines to countries like India, so so the vaccines that are being used for our very low risk people, if they were sent to countries where we have a lot of transmission, probably would do more to control COVID worldwide in the long term. I'm not alone in saying this, but there's sort of national interests and there's international interests, and when you've got a pandemic, it doesn't respect borders. There are quite a few of us who have been saying, is this the best way that we should be using vaccines and vaccinating teenagers? I know there have been a lot of stories in the United States with people asking the same question, is wouldn't we be better off if we really want to control this pandemic to shut down transmission in countries like India and save a heck of a lot more lives long-term by doing that? That's a very high-level decision in terms of vaccine allocation.
0: It does segue, though, too, into how do we get back to normal? What is normal? And you're suggesting maybe we should vaccinate other countries, vaccinate the globe. Can you describe for me what normal's going to look like? Are we gonna need boosters? Or are we putting too much faith on vaccines themselves? And maybe we're gonna have to lock down again in the fall. So c- can you unpack what the fall is gonna look like for us?
1: One of the important questions, which I haven't seen clearly articulated or at least explored, what are we trying to achieve as a society? I would argue that our original objective from March of last year, which was to flatten the curve, in other words, slow down the rate at which people might get severely sick so we don't have an overwhelmed hospital system, is an appropriate goal. COVID is not going to go away. I mean, I know there's some people who use the term COVID zero, but this would mean we would never, ever, ever open up because COVID is not disappearing anytime soon. And so I think what will happen is with the vaccines, along with natural infection, but predominantly the vaccines, particularly our seniors, we are going to see a significant decrease in hospitalization and severe disease. Not that there will be none, but it will be very controllable. It will become our fifth circulating coronavirus. Pre-COVID, we always had four coronaviruses that were what we call endemic coronaviruses. They circulated every year. They caused upper respiratory tract infections. That was the common cold. I think once COVID has swept through the population in areas where they won't have a lot of vaccines or in countries where we vaccinated, what we will see is when respiratory tract season comes around, that COVID will be one of our background viruses in the way that pandemic influenzas become endemic. So, I mean, when we think back to our influenza pandemics, those viruses didn't disappear. We had enough immunity across the population that they became manageable, we could coexist with them. And so in terms of normal, I would hope that we get to a state where we're coexisting. I think we need to accept that there will be some degree of COVID, that there will be seasonality to it. So we will have these waves, but it won't be devastating anymore because of the vaccines. And also if that's our objective, our objective is to ensure that we can cope and we've managed to coexist. And the vaccines really are remarkable at that. We should actually at that point start to think about going back to normal. And we can see that this has happened in Israel. We can see it happening in the United States. So with protection, we won't need a lot of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. In other words, we won't need to constantly fear getting close to people. The role of masks will become unnecessary for most people. There are some people who may choose for whatever reason to continue wearing a mask, which is fine. But would they be mandatory? No, because people are protected. There may be some new normals. One new normal I would really like to see is that if people are sick, that they're allowed to stay home. We've had a culture where we don't really encourage people who are sick to stay home. We actually almost penalize them and shame them and make them come to work sick.
0: Blame and shame doesn't work anywhere.
1: There's some things that I would like to have be normal. And one of them is that we don't shame people if they stay home because they, they're, they're not feeling well. So
0: I'm going to ask you one last question, but then also I'd love to hear sort of your closing advice or answers to questions that I didn't ask. Are we going to have to completely rewrite all the infectious disease and public policy textbooks because of COVID? We learned so much about non-pharmacologic interventions, so now they need to be step number one. But then as you're answering that, you could also think about what haven't we brought up? in the last 45 minutes. I would love to go on for another hour and a half, but I think we're already over time. So what final advice could you give?
1: COVID has taught us a lot about things like transmission. We used to have this dichotomy between droplet versus airborne. I think we've all realized that it's not quite that simple. There's a spectrum of how things are transmitted. We have normalized in a way that's probably good, ways to not get infections, but I would hope that it doesn't stop people from leading normal lives. One thing we haven't really talked about, which I actually think we cannot be underestimated, is COVID has clearly had a devastating impact, but our response to it has been also very devastating. There have been lives ruined because of some of these lockdowns. People, There's job losses, there's shattered dreams. The impact on our children with school closures is going to be felt for their entire lifetime. We have children who will no longer meet literacy goals, numeracy goals. We have children who have essentially been lost to the school system now because they've just faded away because there's no hook anymore. There's no in school. Online doesn't work. They have no sports. They have no music. They have no social activities. We're seeing a public health emergency in our children and our youth which really is going to reverberate for many, many, many years. There are adults who I think are so anxious and so terrified to go out now that there is a degree of anxiety in adults that's going to take a long time to get over. The destruction to people's livelihoods, and it's not really economy versus health, it's health versus health. Because forbidding people from activities, forbidding people from socializing, forbidding people from taking part in their social structures, whether it be their friends or their church or their knitting group, or the people they play poker with, or the people they do yoga with. This is profoundly harmful in what we have done to the fabric of our society. And this simply cannot be underestimated. So we can acknowledge that we've had this pandemic and that COVID was bad, But we mustn't forget that there are many, many other aspects of public health that have been neglected. And because of the vaccines, where we should be turning a lot of our attention now is to try to help and remember that the basic tenets of public health, which is not just no COVID, but it's all the other physical illnesses, it's mental well-being, it's emotional well-being, it's societal well-being. That balance we have lost. And I do think we need to find that balance again in how we're dealing with this. And I hope we learn from this for the future that we never again are in a situation where we skew so much towards one issue facing our society that we lose sight of everything else.
0: What a fantastic closing comment, Dr. Fulford. Yeah, health versus health. I haven't heard it said so well. So thank you so much. Again, this was Dr. Martha Fulford, Associate Professor, Division of Infectious Diseases at McMaster University. You've been listening to Podblast Canada, a premier public policy podcast put on by McDonald laurier Institute. My name is Dr. Sean Watley. I'm one of the senior fellows here. Do check out the other podcasts and send us suggestions on how we could improve our content or cover other topics that you'd be interested in. So thanks so much. And thanks again, Dr. Fulford. Have a great day.
1: Thank you.